Hello, Distilling Theology listeners. Just a heads up, this week's episode was originally supposed to air last week, but some things happened and we got a little bit behind. Our apologies. However, I did want to let you know that our glassware pre-order is going to be extended from this Tuesday through to next Tuesday, March 16th. So you can go over to shopdistillingtheology.com, pre-order your own pair of Distilling Theology Glen Karen's Small Batch 001, and uh, we're really, really excited to finally be able to offer those to you all. So without further ado, episode 60 of Distilling Theology. You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> you're not David. Oh! I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. <laughs> <laughs> I said that with a straight face. This is Stealing Theology. Welcome to episode 60 of Distilling Theology. I'm here with Blake Courtright and Justin Van Riper, and I am Eric, and it's been a while. Hey, good to see you guys. <laughs> Welcome back, dear friend. It's good to see you, buddy. It's nice it to be so surrounded to by my back. favorite Baptists. Nice to be Where? I don't see your girlfriend. Back and see your face. Oh. Anyways, uh, yeah, so it is It is Wednesday, my dudes. It is the middle of the week. Tomorrow is my birthday, so this is yeah. fun. We're going to record before oh. my birthday. Getting Blake's hang out with my three. Happy Who early birthday. You? you should have put a candle inside your Glencairn whiskey glass and with that. Mm, maybe I'll do that <laughs> with tomorrow. The, with, with the whiskey in it. Oh, that was no, Wait for it. Actually, lit. No, they would be lit. I'm not kidding. For patron, for everyone watching, you should light your whiskey on fire right now. Have you ever done that? It's fun. I've done it with overproof stuff, but is it? Gonna, I don't think it's going to work with the Sazerac at it'll light ninety. Yeah, I mean, should. I will. I literally will go. It grab. won't be a big. It won't be a big flame. It should be a oh, little one. That's sad. But you, yeah. Maybe we'll do. Maybe we'll save that for the uh, patron. Patron overtime. Yeah, let's do that oh, yeah. at the end of the show. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll do that. I've got a little bit more. S- Sazerac we'll sing left, to you. So. Okay, we'll sing to you. Cute. Yeah, we'll and, do that at the end of the show. So. uh yeah. <laughs> I'm going to just pick up where we left off and that'll all be for the patrons only. Uh, oh, no, no, no. What? Oh, okay. You right. Leave it in. So entice them. Don't you cut right. that and out. Speaking of our yeah. Glenn Karens, Justin, yeah. what's that thing we're doing that's happening right now, finally? <laughs> oh, guys, if you are interested in things that are of total quality, unconditional flavor, that are limited edition, they have irresistible swag, and are pre-order only, Now's your chance to go over to shopdistillingtheology.com, get a pair of Distilling Theology Small Batch 001 Glen Cairn whiskey glasses. Uh, you only have two weeks. You, you only have you only well, have a short amount of time. Actually, you have now until March. You only have a week. Next Tuesday. That's it. That's it. That's all you get. They're never going to hit the shelves again. Not Batch 001. This is it. This is it. This is it. Uh, yeah, the regular regular price for these in the future will be forty nine ninety five, but in this pre order batch, we're doing them for thirty nine ninety five, and our patrons get an additional ten percent off all orders at shopdistillingtheology.com. So, yeah, boy, pretty yeah, exciting boy. times. Uh, yep, do it. Head over there, and while you're there, grab yourself a shirt, perhaps a hat, 
perhaps a blanket <laughs> or a face mask. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That face mask turned out to be pretty sweet. Yeah, Whether actually. or not you like face masks, it'll, it'll hide you from the, um, from the government's drones, the birds, <laughs> the birds. We all know birds are, are government birds, drones. It's conspiracy. Birds aren't real. Birds, birds aren't, aren't real. real. We just became a very different podcast. <laughs> so yeah, head over there um, and, oh, and, and grab some DT merch, grab your glasses while you can. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we will be, we will be uh, thankful and grateful for you. Do it, do it do for that. Blake for his birthday. Buy something. Aww. Oh, yeah. it's true. Wow. For your, buy something for yourself for Blake's birthday. That's <laughs> right. He doesn't need it. That's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Well, what are we sipping tonight, gentlemen? It was something that we all happen to have on hand. And Eric, uh, yeah. as, the, as the resident distiller, um, did you have something to do with this bottle, though? Did I? What do you mean? I'm being Sorry. sarcastic. Oh, no, I didn't. No. I mean, I bought, the, I bought this bottle. Of, well, you know, that's yeah. participation. Participation yeah, no, trophy. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually cool we all had it on hand. We are drinking Sazerac rye. Whoa. Um, it's actually a rye that is very difficult to find around here in Colorado. Mm. So I only see it out in the wild maybe once or twice a year. And I usually pick up a bottle if I do see it. Um, and just a couple nights ago, I was, I had a, a buddy over who I, is a patron saint here at uh, Distilling Theology. And he and I were hanging out and I went to the liquor store to get something. They had this, I bought it. And then we were talking, trying to figure out what we all had uh, in our bar that was, you know, the same. And it just so happened, I happened to have this. So uh, very providential, but yeah, we're drinking Sazerac rye. It is made by Buffalo Trace Distillery, which is owned by the Sazerac company. Um, this name and I believe the company I imagine reception. Yeah. Uh, gets its name from the classic American cocktail, which is the first American cocktail. Blake, do you want to? Yeah. So this is the Sazerac, uh, which is a phenomenal classic. It goes back to the 1800s, um, from New Orleans. This was at a time when saloons would masquerade as coffee houses. Uh, so this was, so the story goes, the Sazerac cocktail originated at the Sazerac coffee house. Um, and it is a classic that uses rye whiskey, um, a sugar cube, pechouds or Creole bitters and um, absinthe to rinse the glass. It's usually served uh, up. So there's no um, there's no ice on it. And it is usually garnished, at least when I would do it uh, at the speakeasy, it was garnished with lemon oil from a lemon peel, but you would discard the peel. So all you'd be left with is this like about two ounces of red, maybe a little over two ounces of this red drink that just like, mm-hmm. it's it really almost, incredible. Because the Peshouds, am I saying that right? I, I don't know. It. I say yeah. Peshouds, but that's, <laughs> that's not, the more I say yeah. that, that <laughs> it's from New Orleans, that sounds very Americanized. Yeah, so it's no. probably wrong. Justin's just laughing at me because he speaks French. Well, well, Justin, say it. What is it? Where's it spelled out? I can, I can read. No, it. no, well, no. That's not well, how this works. So, so, but that that bitter, it's actually like a bright pink color, and yeah. and the cocktail takes on this like very dark, um, reddish, pinkish hue to it. It actually kind of mm. takes on a Peychaud. Peychaud. Wow. Peychaud. Um, yep, that sounds better. Yeah. So it's actually one of my favorite. It's one of my two favorite cocktails. Oh, what's the other one? Old fashioned. Yeah. I love yeah. a good old fashioned, man. You can't yeah. go wrong. Also in the group, much to somebody's chagrin, I mixed Lagavulin 8 into yeah. a Lagavulin old fashioned. 
Nice. So it How was, was well, here's the thing. I've always had a hard time mixing smoky scotches with the like clove and cinnamon profile of regular aromatic bitters. Mm-hmm. But the Isla old fashioned recipe I saw called for like four to five dashes of Pichaud's bitters, um, mm-hmm. which oh, have sure. that kind of Creole spice flavor. So you do that with a Demerara sugar cube muddled and then you just add the add the ice add the two ounces of lagavulin stir it garnish with a with a orange peel and it's like it highlights all the goodness of the lagavulin eight but it sweetens it a little and it it adds that creole spice and it's just a little bit different but um it's in no way like degradating or taking away from Mm. like the the higher quality that you're using of the whiskey within reason the better that drink is going to taste so eventually i'll taste it with um hard bag and stuff so you know live the dream yeah that's awesome man yeah so uh well you know while we're on the topic have you had a penicillin i was gonna oh dude i love penicillin okay because that's that's that uh it's a it's a scotch cocktail but an Mm -hmm. unpeated but then you have that peated scotch float on top Mm -hmm. right okay yeah yeah, that's the that's the uh peated scotch cocktail that i like it's fresh lemon juice a honey ginger syrup. Usually uh-huh. if, if you're going to be really, really baller with it, you're going to take like local honey and fresh great ginger in a, and make a syrup, like boil it over, reduce it. Anyways, you'll do that. Put that together with the fresh lemon juice, with the scotch, usually like a monkey shoulder or just something smooth and blended and, and fruity. But then you'll float like a quarter of an ounce or like a bar spoon of Laphroaig 10 or something at the top of it. And mm-hmm. it is so good. Nice. Oh, man. Yeah. I love that drink. Yeah. Um, that sounds tasty. mm -hmm. So, but to be clear for everyone, we are not drinking a Sazerac cocktail, even though we Mm -hmm. are talking about cocktails. We are drinking (laughs) Sazerac rye, a straight rye whiskey, again, from the Buffalo Trace distiller. We are drinking it neat tonight. Um, So this is one of two rye mash bills that the Buffalo Trace distillery has. Um, This is, they have a a 18 year version of this that they release every year. That's hard to get your hands on. It's incredibly rare. Um, this one is supposedly aged about six years. Um, Buffalo trace kind of keeps some of the information pretty close to the chest. Um, this is their low rye mash bill, uh, meaning it's over 51% rye content in the mash bill, but it, it's probably not much higher than that. Um, so it's, Mm. it's technically rye, but just barely. Uh, they do have a higher rye just mash barley. bill. Just, just barley. Just, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. They, yeah, no, you're good. They they do have a higher rye mash bill. I believe the only, um, again, it's hard to find information on this, but I believe the uh, only other um, rye mash bill they use is for their E.H. Taylor rye. Mm. They have what uh, their Thomas Handy, which is also part of their collection that's hard to find, what's known as the BTAC or Buffalo mm. Trace Antique Collection that comes out once a year supposedly that is the same whiskey as the Sazerac. It's the same mash bill. Supposedly it's the same age. It's about six years old, just like what we're drinking tonight. But the difference is that uh, they're hand selected specifically for that. So they're going to be what are known as honey barrels, but the, it's also released at barrel proof. Mm. Whereas this, what we're drinking tonight is 45% ABV or 90 proof. Yeah. So this is like a lower version, uh, lower proof version of Thomas Handy, supposedly is what people say. I shouldn't Ooh. give that information out though, because this rye is already near impossible for me to find around here. And now anybody that listens to this and be like, I'm going to go buy Sazerac rye. Save yeah. some for me, you greedy people. Yeah, just buy one. <laughs> I, like I, this, I like this stuff. 
I like this stuff too. Yeah. I, yeah. It's very just good. A, a thought on like the whole bottle hoarding phenomenon where people are like, I really like this whiskey and now it's rare and I'm going to buy the entire shelf of it. Like, don't, don't be that guy. Just buy one bottle. Like, yeah. Save some bottles for the guy behind you because, because that's the kind of behavior that turns a $30 bottle of Henry McKenna yeah. bottled in bond into a 65 or a $70 bottle, which yeah. is tragic. Cause I love that. That was my go-to $30 bourbon. And yep. now it's unattainable. Yep. Realistically, I'm not going to spend that much money on it. It's great. But at that price point, I'm buying scotch or, yeah. you know, fancier single barrel things. So, yeah. 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 Who knows? Yeah. Well, actually, uh, another fun fact about this. It's the same mash bill as Van Winkle's Family Reserve Rye, which I believe if I remember right, they release at 11 year old or 12 year old. I mm. can't remember um, something like that. I had it yeah. once. It was it was delicious. Just basically again, an older mm. version of this whiskey. What we're drinking now. One last distillery question: What yeah. is the designation in the United States for a quote straight rye whiskey, or is that just like a a branding, or is there a specific requirement that has to be met to be called that? Have we have we talked about straight uh, with bourbon before? Probably, but you know, okay. we can use a refresher because yeah, it's it's the same thing as with bourbon, except yeah. um, for it to be rye. Obviously, it has to be fifty one percent or more rye in the mash bill in the recipe um where's bourbon 51 percent or more corn uh otherwise the the requirement or the designation to be straight is the same it's um uh, aged a minimum of two years in brand new charred white oak barrels no yeah. added coloring of any kind it can't be distilled above 160 proof um uh, i feel like i'm forgetting one where was i at with that i don't know that, that those, yeah. are, those are the big ones those are the main ones um mm. so yeah. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks for the refresher. Also, I have to ask you in the patron overtime. Yeah. Um, I got one of those little tiny like liter mini casks oh. and I want to do something with it, but I don't know. I don't know what yet. So I'll ask you at the end of the show because I, I don't want to what I don't want to do is put something in it and then take it out. And it's all like just tastes like oak and doesn't have like I don't yeah. want that. So we can. OK. I'll, yeah, I'll pick we'll your talk. brain about that later. But anyways, yeah. on that note, ge- gentlemen, let's uh, get into this. Oh, wait, did we even smell it yet? No, we did no, not. No, we haven't. We've done it. <laughs> no. Justin's like, <laughs> Justin, what do you smell in this ride? <laughs> uh, man, it's been a while since I've had this. It's really good. Um, orange. Mm-hmm, clove, raisin. It's. It's fruity and spicy. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There's definitely the rye spice, maybe a little bit mm-hmm. of pepper, cinnamon. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, clove I get like that cinnamon note. clove. Yeah. Yeah. And the orange was great. Um, I, I get plums and plum skins and, and a little bit of like apricots mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's also an herbal spiciness to it. Like you're talking cloves. It's not a, it's not a, like a pepper um like a yeah, chili pepper spice not cayenne not spicy in that way but a very yeah. herbal like there's some cardamom in there there's uh yeah, there's anise, like, mint. like black licorice mint yeah. yeah yeah it's very herbal spiciness and clove was a was a, a great note but oh yeah it's, it's it's very gentle on the nose and very pleasant it, yeah i feel like it opens up your sinuses too because that's yeah. spicy. like not in a, a harsh way it is gentle it's, it's cool yeah, like, there is yeah. a, there's a menthol yeah. note to it yeah mm-hmm. it's not like vicks vapor up <laughs> It's, it's not like Vicks, right. It's not like Vicks Vapor, but it does have that cooling yeah. Um, yeah. bite to it. So yeah. Getting notes uh, of Vicks Vapor Rub. There's a hint of like dill in there too. Oh. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's very, okay. 
it's yeah. a classic rye. I'm actually surprised at, at how much um, rye spiciness comes out of this, given the low rye mash bill. Um, yeah. It smells like there'd be a lot more rye in there mm. than there probably is. So for, for the price, man, it, it's just a, I can't, yeah. I can't complain. When all. I we can should, find it, it's about $30 a bottle yeah. when I can find yeah. it. Yeah, if we if if we want to drink uh, sometime in the future a fifty dollar a bottle rye, um, it's probably my favorite rye that's on the market that's easy to find. Um, it's like my go to. I always try to have a bottle of it on hand. We'll talk about that later. All right, yes. I th- I have a feeling I know what you're talking about. Yeah, but we'll I we'll talk at the end of the show. Okay. All right, gentlemen. <laughs> cheers. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apricots. Uh-huh. Orange. I'm getting that plum now that you're talking about. Especially the plum skins, dude. That's yep. like lingering on the back of my tongue. It's like dried plum skins. Like, oh. Yeah. But but that cooling menthol comes in right at the beginning too. Like it yeah. just it just clears out your sinuses, but not in a I'm not even stuffed up, but I'm just like, oh, yeah. I feel it in my whole face. Yeah, it really um, opens up it really opens up your um it's nice. Your sinuses, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's almost um, maybe some vanilla, mm-hmm. caramel. I, if people can find this rye, mm-hmm. I do think it's a great introductory rye to um, to the style. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it falls kind of in the middle. I, I've had ryes that are very very fruity, mm-hmm. and I've had ryes that are very very spicy. And I feel yeah. like this is somewhere in the middle. It's very balanced. It it definitely is a rye. There's some ryes I've had that are almost indistinguishable from bourbons. Um, yeah. Usually it's the lower rye mash bill, lower rye content mash bills like this. But for whatever reason, the rye is really is shining through in this. So you do get a lot of the herbal spices um, that kind of can characterize a rye. That sort of uh, licorice. Um, yeah. The anise. You're talking about kind of bursts yeah. at the end, uh, like a light little burst at the end. Yeah, which I, I think is so drying appro- at the yeah. end a little bit. I think it's appropriate that that black licorice note is in there because the Sazerac mm-hmm. cocktail you use, you know, absinthe or herb saint or anise to rinse the glass. Yep. And so you get that hint of that in the cocktail. And mm-hmm. so for this rye to have that note in there, um, I think is is pretty cool given the name. So it's it's good rye. I like it. Mm-hmm. Now I need to get more Sazerac rye mm-hmm. as an excuse to make another Sazerac. Yeah. I'm also jealous that you guys seven. can find this regularly and for $30 a bottle. It's like $38.40 here oh, when, yeah. when you can find it. It's again, well, I it's getting harder to find. And I've definitely yeah. seen it marked way up. So it's just like certain places that I can find it for. Around here, it's it's pretty reasonably well priced. Um, I mean, I think yeah. the last time that, I don't know when the last time you bought it, Blake, was. But uh, the last time ago. I bought it was when you were here. Um, and, yeah. and, and, and every time I've gone to the liquor store, it's been there. Well, you know why it's hard to find is because it's a Buffalo Trace product. Yeah. Which is fine. You know, Buffalo Trace makes some phenomenal whiskeys, but everybody listening to this, don't tell anybody else. There are a lot of other really good distilleries out there Mm -hmm. besides Buffalo Trace. (laughs) But don't let everyone else in on that because everybody's obsessed with Buffalo Trace and I don't want all my other that I can't or I don't want to be able to not find those. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, like, how it was not that long ago that like Pappy Van Winkle or like the Van Winkle 10 and 12 were like reasonably priced bottles that you could find on the shelf collecting dust in a liquor store. Sure. I used like, to, 
I, I've seen Pappy on the shelf numerous times, but that was 15 yeah. plus years ago at this point. Yeah. So right now it's like behind yeah. a glass case with a key and it's <laughs> some outlandish it's, price. It's good, but it's not that good. Like it's right, a great whiskey, but it's not, it's no. <laughs> anyway, the hype, the hype. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for giving us some details. I enjoyed sipping that and tasting that with you guys. And, uh, I'll be sipping I, this throughout en- the episode. I'm going to enjoy seeing you try to light it on fire later in the Patreon section. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm going to be lit, guys. I only have matches. Is that going to work? Because I can do that for like an absinthe rinse of a glass, but I don't. I haven't tried it with a, something under 100 proof. I don't have any any torches right now, so I have one. That's not going to help. It me. should light, and a match will probably work. It's it's going to just be a really low yeah. flame. Yeah, because the fumes are not so strong off of this. That but, low of proof, but yeah. Yeah, Correct. I've got some yeah. higher proof stuff on the shelf behind me if I really want to get crazy right. with it. So, speaking of fumes, whoa, what are we talking about tonight? <laughs> That's not uh, nice. Uh, Best well, transition of 2021. Hopefully, we're not just blowing off some fumes, though. We're going to uh, start with some prayer. Uh, Justin, do you want to lead us in prayer from the Valley of Vision? Sure, folks. If you have a Valley of Vision, which if you don't, uh, are you even reformed? No, uh, pick up, <laughs> not yet. Pick up no, a copy. If they don't. Um, it's phenomenal. Uh, collection of Puritan prayers. Uh, highly recommend it. It may very well change your prayer life. It certainly impacted mine. Yeah. Uh, page three fifty. Scriptural convictions. O God of love, I approach thee with encouragements derived from thy character. For I am not left to feel after thee in the darkness of my nature, nor to worship thee as the unknown God. I cannot find out thy perfections, but I know that thou art good, ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy. Thou hast displayed thy wisdom, power, and goodness in all thy works, and hast revealed thy will in the scripture of truth. Thou hast caused it to be preserved, translated, published, multiplied, so that all men may possess it and find it, find thee in it. Here I see thy greatness and thy grace, thy pity and thy rectitude, thy mercy and thy truth, thy being and men's hearts. Through it thou hast magnified thy name and favored mankind with the gospel. Have mercy on me, for I have ungratefully received thy benefits, little improved my privileges, made light of spiritual things, disregarded thy messages, contended with examples of the good, rebukes of the conscience, admonitions of friends, leadings of providence. I deserve that thy kingdom be taken away from me. Lord, I confess my sin with feeling, lamentation, a broken heart, a contrite spirit, self-abhorrence, self-condemnation, self-despair. Give me relief by Jesus my hope faith in his name of Savior, forgiveness by his blood, strength by his presence, holiness by his spirit, and let me love thee with all of my heart. Mm. Amen. 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 Man. I just love that this one opens with, O God of love, I approach thee with encouragements derived from thy character. Right? Like that's Psalm 23, right? Uh, Lead me in paths of righteousness for your namesake, for who mm-hmm. you are, 
right? The, the basis upon which we approach the throne of grace is because of the one who, whom we're approaching. Um, mm. And this at the end, and let me love thee with all my heart, right? Like, Lord, uh, that, that humble recognition that we don't really have as much control of our, of our own hearts and desires as we like to pretend that we do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I also like the recognition of God's sovereignty in it all, right? Let, let me love thee with all my heart. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Th- our faith and our love and our adoration for Christ is a work uh, mm-hmm. of, of God in us. Amen. Mm. That's so good. Now, how do we know that Blake? <laughs> well, we know that from the only true evidence that's the 66 books from the Old and New Testament of Scripture. I stole that line from Shailen, uh, from uh, Lyrical Theology. But anyways, um, so tonight we want to start, uh, we want to look at some Scripture. We want to see the Old Testament and its relationship to the New Testament. Um, we're going to take a little pause from systematic theology and shift gears into a topic, uh, a field of study known as biblical theology. Um, which I have definitely heard some people pit against uh, biblical versus systematic uh, and and this question of, well, shouldn't all theology be biblical, which like that's a real that's a real thing, but um, that's also misunderstands the actual the technical terminology. That's true. And to, to be fair, um, it is not a great name for the no. the school of theology or the you know the the specific discipline that this theology uses it's it i mean yes it's based around the bible as we're going to be talking about um but it it does kind of give off it's it's a little bit of a misnomer yeah i think mm-hmm. i don't even misnomer just i, I yeah you know i think what, you know what i'm trying to say i think it's it's it's, it's one of those like well isn't all theology biblical like i, I, I can yeah someone would be confused because there is a very technical um meaning to this phrase to biblical theology. It's a very specific. Um, yeah. Um, it, it's one of those semantical things, right? If yeah. depending on how you read the, the phrase uh, you can interpret it a number of different ways. Um, and that can, that can throw people off, which. Yeah. So I what, get. what, what is meant um, by biblical theology then in this context that we're using the, the two words? Yeah. So, well, real quick to contrast what Blake was saying about systematic theology, right? Um, systematic theology is like the organization of, um, what the Bible says on all different topics, all kinds of different topics, right? Christology, pneumatology, eschatology, all those different topics, all the different studies of the Bible fall under the different categories of systematic theology. Um, and so biblical theology, like you said, is often misused or, or used differently in saying that, uh, you know, it just means theology that's biblical. Well, of course. We, we would affirm that we want biblical theology in that sense, but uh, generally uh, it's going to be used uh, to mean a way of reading the Bible, right? Our hermeneutic of the Bible, how we mm-hmm. read the scriptures, the redemptive record uh, of God, uh, from God, from the throne of heaven to us. Um, how are we reading that? What's our hermeneutic? And so that way, how can we properly understand it, right? Um, to properly understand the Bible, we have to properly understand how to read the Bible, Um <gasps> Uh, we have to understand it as one story, mm. um, and it assumes that scriptures, many human authors tell one story uh, about Christ, right? The divine um, author uh, of the scriptures, the word made flesh, as it were. Um, 
And so just like good doctrine depends on good exegesis of the, of the, of the scriptures, um, it also depends on good biblical theology. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, right, like you have exegesis, and we talked about this back in our intro to systematic theology, right? Exegesis, mm-hmm. what does the text say? Mm-hmm. And hermeneutics, the interpretation, what does the text mean? Right. Um, but that is a, in in many ways, is downstream of our biblical theology. And ultimately, it, sure. it, it feeds back into it, right? Our interpretation feeds our overall view and vice versa. So it's very important. Yeah, well, right. And bad biblical theology is going to change the shift of the focus of the scriptures. It's going to, it's going to make it so the scriptures are not about Christ, but about us in some way, um, which often leads to preaching that is narcissistic in nature. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's narcissistic about it's it's what does the Bible say about me? How am I? Um, you know, it's it's not. You know, we go back to our intro. You know, you're not David. It's not about you. Mm. The scriptures. Uh, you're a benefactor uh, of of um, the story of scripture you're you're spoken about uh, but it's not ultimately about you uh, it's about God and his glory mm-hmm. and yeah. yeah 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 I was gonna pull pull uh this is a slightly lengthy quote here from Gerhardus Voss uh, in his book biblical theology uh, republished uh, by banner of truth in 1975 and then this reprint is 2017 but the original publication was 1948 um and voss is largely regarded as the father of modern reformed biblical theology in terms of that field so we're not going to be getting the full depth of what voss has to say i would just commend from banner of truth biblical theology by gerhardus voss but here's something voss says to us in his introduction of like what is this idea He writes, the usual treatment of theology distinguishes four departments which are named exegetical, historical, systematic, and practical. And as he goes along this, the point is that exegetical is the first of these, that precedence is due to uh, the instinctive recognition that at the beginning, all of theology, of all theology lies a passive receptive attitude on the part of one who engages in its study. Um, It is eminently a process in which God speaks and man listens. Exegetical theology, however, should not be regarded as confined to exegesis. The former is a larger whole of which the latter is indeed an important part. But after all, only a part. Exegetical theology in the wider sense comprises the following disciplines. He writes, a study of the actual content of holy scriptures, an inquiry into the origin of of the several biblical writings, including the identity of the writers, the time and occasion of composition, dependence on possible sources, etc. This is called introduction and may be regarded as a further carrying out of the process of exegesis proper. Third, the putting of the question of how these several writings came to be collected into the unity of a Bible or book. This part of the process bears the technical name of canonics. And four, the study of the actual self-disclosures of God in time and space, which lie in which lie back of even the first committal to writing of any biblical document, and which for a long time continued to run alongside of the inscription of revealed material. This last name procedure is called the study of biblical theology. Uh, further down, when looking at the process from the point of view of the divine activity, the order requires to be reversed. 
The sequence here being divine self-revelation, committal to writing of the revelation product, gathering of the several writings thus produced into the unity of a collection, and the production and guidance of the study of the content of biblical writing. He says, biblical theology is that branch of exegetical theology which deals with the process of the self-revelation of God deposited in the Bible. And their revelation is used as a noun of action, he says. Biblical theology deals with revelation as a divine activity, not as the finished product of that activity. So biblical theology then is connected to exegesis intimately and is so, so Mm -hmm. critical for us if we're going to understand the flow of redemptive history, if we're to understand what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation, if we're to connect the pieces of why are we hearing this particular story in right. Genesis of these families to Jesus on the cross. Well, yeah, it helps your exegesis be gospel-focused and not just merely moralistic, right? Right. Um, when when it, Good biblical theology, just like the confessions or the creeds, are another way for the church to guard its its doctrine, right? Um, yeah. And keep the church from repeating heresies and all kinds of other uh, things. I mean, look at the result of bad biblical theology. You end up in in a multitude of cults, for example, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, yeah. the progressive Christian movement, liberal theology, all these churches that are um, that have ended up with with all kinds of issues. Uh, a lot of that started, or most of that started, with bad biblical theology. They didn't know how to read the Bible, and so they read it wrong <laughs> and came up with all these other terrible ideas. Um, uh, it, 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 good biblical theology teaches that God doesn't just save people, individuals, but a whole people, right? Mm-hmm. A body, um, a, a, right? He, he saves a people unto himself, yeah. uh, the elect. And, and you get that from, from having a biblical theology that, um, that accurately represents what the scriptures teach. Um, No, that's good, man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so, so biblical theology is understanding um, the whole story of redemption, what God is doing Mm -hmm. throughout time. It's seeing the interconnectedness in scripture because we have the right lenses on as we read scripture. We, um, we, we have the right exegesis, the right hermeneutics. If, If you've heard of, scripture interpreting scripture that hermeneutic principle that's a very biblical theological uh hermeneutic uh, mm-hmm. right there it, it's it's yeah. understanding that that doctrine and god's revelation is progressive meaning mm-hmm. it's revealed over time and that the biblical writers are understanding this um, as god's revelation progresses through history there's greater and greater understanding until it culminates with the writing yes. of the new testament and, and, you know, that, that Gearhardus Voss quote is fantastic, but if anybody listening to this is like me and is going to have to go back and listen to that a number of times, um, <laughs> you know, Blake summarized it pretty well. Like he sees like, it's about exegesis. That's really what mm-hmm. biblical theology is. And if you guys will permit me, I want to read a somewhat lengthy quote as well um, mm-hmm. from a slightly dumbed down book uh, that maybe us laymen will understand a little bit better. <laughs> This is a more modern book by James Hamilton called What is Biblical Theology? It's only like 100, nice. 120 pages. Um, I, I, I recommend it to, to anybody wanting to study this subject as well. Um, Voss is fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. 
but this also might be a little bit more at your speed. So I just wanted to offer this as well. In uh, the second chapter, he's defining biblical theology. And uh, Dr. Hamilton says, what is an, in- oh, sorry, uh, he says that biblical theology is the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. What is an interpretive perspective? It's the framework of assumptions and presuppositions, associations and identifications, truths and symbols that are taken for granted as an author or speaker describes the world and the events that take place in it. So what do the biblical authors use this perspective to interpret? First, the biblical authors have interpreted earlier scripture, or in the case of the very first author on record, probably Moses, uh, accounts for God's words and deeds that were passed down to him. Second, they interpreted world history from creation to consummation. And third, they interpreted the events and statements that they describe. Moses didn't recount everything that Balaam said and did in the instances presented in Numbers 22 through 24. Moses selected what he wanted, arranged it with care, and presented the true story. The presentation of Balaam's oracles that Moses gives us in the book of Numbers is already an interpretation of them. And because I believe that Moses was inspired by the Holy Spirit, I hold that his interpretation makes his account of the Balaam oracles more true, not less. More true because the way Moses selected, arranged, and presented, i.e. interpreted, enables his audience to see more clearly what Balaam said and did, how it fits into the true story of the world that Moses tells in the Pentateuch. So to summarize by the phrase biblical theology, I mean the interpretive perspective reflected in the way the biblical authors have presented their understanding of earlier scripture, redemptive history, and the events they are describing, recounting, celebrating, or addressing in narratives, poems, proverbs, letters, and apocalypses. In a so that's the end of the quote, but in a nutshell, it's, it's a worldview in a sense mm-hmm. that when yeah. you have a certain worldview or as James Hamilton says, an interpretive framework, um, it affects your exegesis. It impacts the way you read scripture. And that's what Voss is getting at, that the study of these things um, should help us see the connections running throughout scripture, the, the symbols, the types. Yeah. Um, typology is very big in the study of, of um, biblical theology, in the study of scripture. And in yeah. past episodes, I know we talked about covenant theology. And if, if anyone listening to this might be more familiar with the study of covenant theology than biblical theology, let me just say that if you study covenant theology, in a way you're already learning biblical theology. Mm. Covenant theology, in a sense, is kind of a marriage between systematic and biblical theology. Um, it's it's looking over all the scriptures. Um, it's It's pulling all these different threads into describing something like covenants. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's biblical in the sense that it does it um, chronologically. It, it goes over the scriptures and tells all of the redemptive story. It just is in this instance, focusing on the covenants that God makes, whereas biblical theology, the, the, the discipline that we're talking about tonight is, is more broad. You can yeah. look at lots of different things. You know, in this book, James Hamilton looks at uh, one of the things he looks at is the church, the church mm-hmm. through scripture in redemptive history. So you can pull on a lot of different threads yeah. And so again, covenant theology is just one of those threads um, in the discipline of biblical theology. So many of you guys who've been listening to this podcast are probably already very familiar um, with the ideas of biblical theology. It's just putting words to them um, mm. that I think would be helpful for all of us. Yeah. Mm. So good. 
I think we can even see biblical theology being played out in Jesus' words to um, the Jews, for example, in John, when he's mm-hmm. basically chastising them for not recognizing that the scriptures are about him. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or Road to Emmaus. Right. Or like here, in... Show you yeah, go ahead. Things. Well, yeah, well, exactly. And also ahead. Hebrews 1, right? Hebrews 1, mm-hmm. 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Mm-hmm. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so yeah. we have this cohesion. The biblical message is the same. Yeah. It's just that God, you, it's progressive. It, it is unveiled in time, in circumstances, in God's way that he was pleased to reveal his will through time. Yeah. Uh, and it builds and culminates like that's why no no one knew what was happening until it was exposited to them until Jesus taught it and later by the spirit the the apostles exposited yeah, as well. Yeah. In in Luke we, in Luke 24 we see him doing that with the disciples. At least two of them he's telling them that the whole Old Testament points to him. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I think biblical theology is one of those um disciplines if you want to call it that. Uh, I mean it goes back to the garden, right? It goes back mm-hmm. to Noah and Abraham and and Exodus and the Passover and the law and the Psalms and the prophets, everything. Um, it all works together beautifully and perfectly. Um, it's a, the nature of an inerrant, infallible uh, word, is it not? <laughs> Inspired, inerrant, infallible. All right, all right, all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the three eyes. <laughs> mm. Well, on that note, let's, let's take a look at a section of scripture and see... A little bit, you know, we're we're kind of doing this on the fly. This is a little bit more like mellow, so you know, no no substitute whatsoever for the preached word on on the Lord's day. But just a little reflection here. We're going to go to Matthew chapter three. I'm just going to read this section real fast, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, "I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me?" But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it was fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And now Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. 
it's a familiar record, but I want us to take a take a second and like orient what's going on here from from the baptism and the temptation, and where else do we see some some parallels in the Old Testament here? Well, I just wanted to quickly point out it's it's uh, noteworthy that both the devil and Jesus are appealing to what what is written. Mm-hmm. So just throwing that out there. Yeah, yeah, because the devil, the first temptation, if you are the son of God, it's an attack on the identity mm-hmm. of the son. Mm-hmm. Then do this miraculous thing, alleviate your hunger. Mm-hmm. And Jesus replies, it is written. And then in the, the following temptation, Satan says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it, for is, it written. is written. Yep. For the Bible says, and he's quoting scripture, yep. but he's not doing biblical theology particularly well here. <laughs> he's just pulling the verse out ripping the verse out of its context and neglecting the rest of revelation right Mm -hmm. and that's and and isn't that exactly what the false teachers the sons of the devil do to this Mm. day they rip verses out of context and they say it's it's written the bible says the bible clearly says i can do all things through christ who strengthens me so you go bench press that 500 pounds skinny man like it it doesn't like they fail to account for the actual context and, and what's been revealed and what's happening. Is, isn't it what God has all, or was it, isn't it what Satan has always done? It is. Oh, yeah. oh where I, else I mean, do we see this? Look back at the garden. The has, God has God really said? said, yeah, you mean Genesis? Yeah. Three? <laughs> um, you, yes, you, you see Satan twisting the word of God from the yes. very beginning yes. Yes. and you see him doing it here now. And we should notice ties to that we should Mm -hmm. when we read this it should hearken us back to the garden it it, really Mm. there's actually a lot of depth to this that matthew is getting at there's reasons he records these events for us um but one of the important things is is look um satan came to adam in the garden Mm -hmm. deceiving him twisting god's word no you will not surely die has god really said Mm -hmm. and adam failed yeah. Adam failed. He didn't rely on God's word. He didn't rely on the word of God that he heard with his own ears as he walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden, right? Yeah. Instead right. of going back to the word and saying, no, God has said, he failed. He listened to Satan. Now Christ is being tempted by that same devil. And when Satan seeks to twist God's word there, Christ goes back to the actual word of his father. And he succeeds where Adam failed in resisting the temptation of Satan. Mm. And, and we, and we know, you know, from Romans and elsewhere in scripture, there's Adam, there's Christ. Christ is the new Adam, the better Adam. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, these are certain ties that we're we're seeing. There's actually a lot in this section of Matthew, but that's, that's one speaking of Satan and his twisting of, of scriptures. Well, and to that, I was wondering, do one of you guys want to pick up, Genesis starting in 215 and getting through three because I was just as you're saying that Eric I was just skimming that section and I was like there's a lot going on here that like we're just gonna we're just gonna do like a 10,000 foot level surface here but um which one of you guys has that Genesis 215 uh I got it right here yeah Genesis 2 starting at verse 15 Mm -hmm. the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it to keep it And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. 
I will make him a helper fit for him. Now go out of the ground. Uh, The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that it was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with with its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. (laughs) Whoa, man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, No, um, whoa, man. Woe, man. She should be called woe, man, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Hmm. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And then let's get into the only reason that I want that I started that far back is look at the beginning here in 215. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Matthew 4, 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. So Mm -hmm. God is taking Jesus and putting him in the wilderness. God is taking Adam and placing him in the garden. And in the case of Jesus, he's sent alone. And in the case of Adam, it's not good that you're alone. And God not only brings all these animals and none of them are fit, God creates the perfect helper, the perfect companion for Adam as he's in the garden. What an advantage is Adam sitting in here when we come to Genesis three, mm-hmm. he's not only in this lush garden where all his needs are met, where everything he could want is there. And the Lord has spoken to him directly about all these things you can have, except this one thing. And he's not, God says, it's not good that you're alone. Here's the woman. Here's your, your helper. He's not alone. He's in a good, he's in as good a state as he could possibly be. Jesus, on the other hand, driven into the wilderness by the Holy spirit, Alone, destitute, hungry, tired, and thirsty for 40 days and 40 nights. And then we get to Genesis 3. I don't know if one of you guys want to hit just the beginning there, but um, in Genesis 3. But I'm just loving these. Like, it's just. And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had, God had made. He said to the woman, and here it is. Did God actually say, mm. you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of every fruit of the tree of the, uh, of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. Now, remember, he was there. He was with her, right. and he ate. Let's let's not uh, abrogate Adam's responsibility here, people. Well, uh, right, abrog- he abrogated his own responsibility precisely. to lead and to and to defend and to to stand upright. Instead, he's like, if I remember correctly, the Hebrew there for who was with her is literally mm-hmm. like he's standing right next to her as this yes. is happening. Yeah. And, and he does nothing. nothing. To it. Yeah. And yeah. Our, isn't that, isn't that the, not to get too far in, into harmonial or, or uh, uh, anthropology, but isn't that like so common mm-hmm. of the, ch- the sons of Adam, right? Mm-hmm. 
we want to abrogate our responsibilities and just like, well, nope, I'm going to bow out. I'm not going to do anything. So the Bible is so rich. All right. Okay. So <laughs> there's a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, you know, horribly paraphrase this, but we were talking earlier about this passage, Blake, about mm-hmm. reading Matthew and about how when he's in the wilderness, how that also echoes the garden of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but now you're talking about Adam in the garden and where he failed. Yeah. Um, where, where Adam uh, uh, failed to say, God comes to the garden looking for him. And, and he's like, the woman made me do it. And, and he's not, <laughs> he's not standing up. He's not, he's Wait. not fighting off Satan. Mm-hmm. But then later in the garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers come for Christ, yeah. um, he actually stands up, you know, uh, who is it you're looking for? We're looking for Jesus Christ. It is I am he. And they yeah. fall backwards. Yeah. And then, and then he asks them again, at, you know, and I am he, and he just says that I ask that you let these disciples go. Mm-hmm. He protects them where Adam failed to protect Eve. Mm-hmm. He takes it upon himself. You see um, where Adam was weak and cowardly Christ succeeded. He was, you know, he, he, was perfect he is perfect so mm. um so there's that time i mean it, it's it's this tapestry when you're looking mm-hmm. at biblical theology you start looking for patterns and you start seeing typology and you start seeing all this stuff in there you know we're talking about christ being tempted in the wilderness and we're, go, we're saying hey look at how um christ quoted the scriptures back to Satan, and he did it accurately where you see the woman mm-hmm. and mm. she not only um you know, not only does Adam and Eve give in to Satan, but she actually doesn't quote God correctly yeah. uh, back to back to Satan. But then you're also looking at this wilderness, and we could we could see other ties that Matthew's I think wanting us to think about when he's yeah. writing this, and when the Holy Spirit's inspiring him. Right. So, beginning of chapter four, um, it says, uh, "Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting forty days and forty nights, where else?" In the Bible, do we see a wilderness and the number 40 used? Oh, to about uh, that, uh, the exodus of Israel, the, ex- the wandering in the desert what? of Israel. And we see, you know, Israel was referred to as God's son uh, mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. Now here we see the actual true son of God. Um, and mm-hmm. we see him born of a virgin. We see him fleeing uh uh, to Egypt to flee from being killed, mm-hmm. just like Moses. We see him in, in chapter three of Matthew that you just read. We see him baptized and John doesn't want to do it, but he says it needs to be done to fulfill all righteousness, mm-hmm. uh, which that heart. And I'm, I know I'm really scatterbrained here, but that harkens back to the priestly washings mm-hmm. in the old Testament, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the priests had a very specific washing ritual that involved bathing in water as part of the washing before they started their priestly ministry. This was the beginning of Christ's ministry. Um, priests mm. could not start their ministry until they were 30 and they had to be washed before they started. This was part, this was the beginning of Christ's ministry. So, so there's that, but also, so after uh, the early Christ's early life uh, resembling Moses, right. Mm. And him fleeing, then we see this, uh, where he goes into the waters and actually is baptized. But we see Peter talking about the, the, um, the Israelites going through the Red Sea as a form of baptism. Mm. And so we see Christ being baptized 
uh, as as um, the Israelites, in a sense, were baptized that Peter says going through the Red Sea. But then what happens when the Israelites get on the other side of the Red Sea? They wander in the wilderness immediately after Christ is baptized. He's in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights. What we see, what Matthew's saying here is he's showing us parts of Christ's early life that is highlighting the fact that he is the true son of God, because we are seeing this pattern that's being recapitulated in Christ's life of, of ex, you know, fleeing to Egypt, of exodus from Egypt, of mm-hmm. being baptized, whether it's through the Red Sea or being washed here, of mm-hmm. going into the wilderness, of being tempted. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's so many threads and it's, it's actually hard for my mind to even keep on track with any one of them right oh, now, dude. Yeah, but I'm like, so overwhelmed. this is so what, good. this is what biblical theology is. It's, it's yeah. when the writers of scripture, you know, w- when we talk about the inspiration of scripture, we know that it's not, um, it's not the Holy spirit just kind of takes the person over and they go into this fugue state and they're just like, you know, writing their eyes glass over and, and, you know, they come to, and they've written a whole book of the Bible and they don't know how it got there. Yeah. Their person, their personality are in these books. You can identify writers of the, yes. of the, of uh, the yes. different books of the Bible based on their personalities and the way they're writing. Mm-hmm. Right. So these are real people who lived, who observed these events or had these events told to them or, you know, depending on the person and the book mm-hmm. and the Holy spirit inspires them, but they have a, they have a worldview as Hamilton says, an interpretive framework where they're, they're seeing all the things that happened before. And Matthew being the, the good Jew that he was in the sense of knowing, you know, Judaism, um, he, he understands the stories of Israel. And this happens in Christ's life, but people often wonder why are we skipping the, the early years of Christ's life? There's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons that Matthew's highlighting these things early on is to showcase for us he is the true son of God that mm. Israel as a nation signified. He is the fulfillment. Mm. Um, he will do what Israel couldn't do, what Adam couldn't do. Right. Um, and, yeah. and you see this recapitulation of the story of Israel and Christ's early life, in a sense, going through what they went through to identify him as chosen by God. So, but, and you see that that's so beautiful, man. You see that in, in chapter two, uh, verse 15 of Matthew's gospel, right? This mm-hmm. was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. It's been an old Testament prophecy out of Egypt. I called my son when the original context, it is talking about the exodus of, uh, of, of Israel, the nation from Egypt into, and then their wilderness through the red sea and their wilderness wanderings for 40 years before entering the land of promise. Right. By conquest, mind you. Then here we see Jesus, as you've said, the true Israel, right? The 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 uh, the, the content of Scripture, if you will, right? Coming and and reliving these moments, and yeah, there's so much in this passage. If we haven't impressed that upon you guys already, there's so much happening <laughs> in here that like we, there's no way we're we're gonna do anything but scratch the surface here. I did want to touch to what you were saying, Eric, about. Uh, Jesus and Adam real fast from Romans 5 verse 12 right therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given but sin was not but sin is not counted where there is no law yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come but 
The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Like it's right. Like there it is. Like that's, we're not just, you know, pontificating and we don't have, we're not left to, to guess about whether this is what's happening in Matthew's gospel or in, in Luke's account for that matter. Like the spirit inspires Paul and in Paul's voice in Romans, as he's writing to the, to the Roman church, he's expositing these things. And so we can mm-hmm. have confidence in this. Like this is, this is what yeah. the Bible is saying through and through. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. So Paul is expositing there. He he's he's exegeting. He's interpreting. He is saying, this is what the earlier passages in scripture, this is what they meant. They were pointing to Christ. It is telling a bigger story and Christ is the center of, that, of the story. And you were talking about Matthew earlier, talking about um, being called out of the wilderness and how that uh, it, um, that was talking about Israel, not Christ. And you're saying, oh, but it's being fulfilled in Christ. But it, nowhere in scripture does it say uh, that the Messiah will be called out of the wilderness. Um, but here's another, just another similar thing where we see John interpreting earlier scripture to be pointing to Christ, but with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit inspiring him as he writes this. So in um, John, uh, where am I? Um, John 19, it's, it's the crucifixion of Christ. Mm. And uh, I just lost my place. Sorry. I left my Bible upstairs and I'm on my, my phone. I'm trying to do this on my phone. <laughs> um, so, okay. So this is Christ on the cross and, and he's being crucified and the soldiers are coming to break the legs of those to kill them faster. And they come to Christ, but he's already died. Um, says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it uh, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now that is quoting, John is quoting there, Exodus 12, 46. Uh, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. Moses is writing there of the Passover lamb. Mm. This mm. is the lamb at Passover that paid the price for the Israelites. The blood of that lamb was put on their doorposts so that the angel would pass over them and spare them and show them mercy. And John here is tying the Passover lamb directly to Christ and yet nowhere does it say that the Messiah will not have broken bones, but mm. the, in the worldview, the interpretation of the, the writers of scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, John now sees, whereas before they saw through a glass darkly, this was, this was mystery all through mm-hmm. the Old Testament. They're in, they're, it's shrouded that. in mystery, yeah. right? And here, John is being given revelation that he shares with us, saying that the reason Christ's legs were not broken, though every, you know the other two on the cross legs were broken, was so that the scriptures might be fulfilled where it says none of his bones will be broken. 
Mm. because he is the Passover lamb for the world, which was just a type. The Passover lamb in Exodus was a type of Christ. And that's biblical theology. It's trying to get in the minds and understand um, yeah. the world, understand the scriptures, understand everything around us with the same type of, of mindset as the biblical authors looking through this with the same lens they have. And I just want to read this awesome quote from James Hamilton. He encourages us to read the world from the Bible's perspective rather than reading the Bible from the world's perspective. Send it. You know, listen, <laughs> listen. that's it. Guys, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we have more to talk about, but if you want to hear it, you got to join us on Patreon. Oh, shoot. Uh, head over this to patreon.com, four ninety nine a month. Uh, and you will get all of the extended conversation. You'll get to see this glorious mustache on our beard, on our friend mm-hmm. here, Eric, uh, <laughs> in all of its in all of its glory. And um, yeah, and all you got to do is sacrifice one grande uh, latte that you don't actually need uh, a month um, to do that. So come join us. We'll be happy to have you. Um, Blake, what are we going to be talking about next week? Well, next week, we're going to keep talking about biblical theology. We're going to get a little technical. We're going to be tasting Casamigos Blanco Tequila. Uh, so it's going to be awesome. Not going to want to miss it. Just a friendly reminder, when that episode drops, that's the last day to get uh, these glasses. So head over to shopdistillingtheology.com to grab those. Also, as an addendum, uh, check out the book, What is Biblical Theology by Hamilton. Check out Biblical Theology by Gerhardus Voss. Check out yeah. the commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, edited by uh, G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson. Mm. Uh, we'll recommend those again next week. And also, if you guys want to get some more good sauce in your podcasting, if you want to um, <laughs> subscribe in one spot, one the one-stop shop for all your theology podcast needs, be sure to head over to reformedpodcasts.com and you will find our friends at the Society of Reformed Podcasters, a network of doctrinally sound podcasts from a reformed perspective. The roll call includes Assurance of Pardon, the Bobcast, Christ in Context, Distilling Theology, Fast God Stuff, Five Points Church Planting Podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude, Reform Brotherhood, Reform Pilgrims, Seeker Start, Sippin' on Theology, and the Steady Anchor Podcast. And I misspoke last week. It is not Reformed Resurgence. The new podcast is called Restless. It is about, it is a, it is a post-mortem on the Young Restless Reform Movement, and uh, I would definitely commend all those shows to you guys and more. So guys also check us out on social media. We're obviously on Facebook. We have a page in a group. Please like the page and join the group and you will have an awesome, awesome experience. Uh, Just this week, for example, we had a poll. Are you a credo Baptist? Are you a pedo Baptist? On which side of the spectrum do you fall? Well, um, it is currently perfectly balanced as all things should be <laughs> at a hundred each. It's a hundred each. There's a hundred credo Baptists, a hundred pedo Baptists in the group so far. Uh, there's like 130 comments on just that one thread. Um, there's another meme that was awesome. Uh, you know, uh, Presbyterians when uh, they read John the Baptist and it's the kid is all <laughs> distraught, you know, uh, and just such a fun conversation over there. And, and the best thing about our group uh, is that nobody gets mad and angry, and there's no mm-hmm. there's no cagers. It's it's I, just a a sage style group. I love how you, wonderful. 
I love how you just try to describe a meme. It never works. <laughs> it never People works. should stop trying to describe memes. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, my life is a meme. Uh, check us out on uh, Facebook. Uh, also check us out on Instagram at Stealing Theology, where you will find some of the coolest photos of whiskey and books and Bibles. Uh, check it out. Follow us. There's like 1,200 followers on there already. Uh, you'll get some great shots when we do giveaways. We usually post pictures there. Check it out. Check it out. It's good stuff. Um, and then... As we've already plugged, Patreon. Mm-hmm. Get on it. This is the way. Well, thank you guys for hanging out. We're excited. We'll see you next time. And we're going to have some fun discussions in Patreon Overtime. I'm going to try and light my whiskey on fire. So you're not going to want to miss that. But anyways. Guys, whatever you do. Whether you eat or drink. Do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed hanging out with Eric and recording it. Conversation went on for a quite a while longer, and you can check the full thing out at patreon.com slash distilling theology. But here's a sneak preview from that extended conversation. The Old Testament is showcasing to us the types and figures that are fulfilled in Christ and mm-hmm. that find their consummation and, and fullest expression in Jesus. And then when we get to Christ, we say, oh, that's what this was about the whole time. And like we said tonight, like that's what biblical theology does. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it comes so much more alive when we recognize that the Old Testament is real history, right? Which is why, um, of course, I think the, the, the attack on, on the church is on the historicity of the Bible because like when we recognize that these things are real things that took place it just really really elevates the level of by which we recognize um, the impact that that would have had or that that should have yeah and yeah just this idea of trying to get into the heads of those who the the authors of scripture um, their worldview I mean, that's at the heart of biblical theology is understanding the story as being revealed over time, them seeing the connections, intentionally writing the connections. Um, you know, when when Mark and Luke talk about the transfiguration, they're, they're doing it intentionally. They're recording this after six days they went up on the mountain. Okay. He didn't have to put six days in there, but he did for a reason. And again, it's not just because he was overcome by the Holy Spirit. And he's like, I don't even know why I wrote six days, but I just did. It's, it's no, there's intentionality um, because these were real people and they saw the significance of what Christ was doing on the mountain. And I just realized something 